0: I have a very simple question for us this morning as we think about Mark 15, as we think about the passage in Luke, as we think about these last passages that we've read, Isaiah and Revelation, a question that can frame all of these passages, and it's this, and maybe you've actually wondered this question in your own Bible reading, you've wondered, why three days? Why three? After Jesus is crucified, do we need to wait even longer for the redemption of God to be revealed? The disciples have been waiting for so long. Consider Joseph of Arimathea. He has been waiting. He has been looking for the kingdom. He has been waiting. They have exercised faith. They are there at the cross and Jesus crucified before them. Why delay? Why prolong the agony? God could have, as soon as Jesus breathed his last, given Jesus that greatest of gifts, the resurrection from death to life. Why wait? And why wait this lengthy amount of time, three full days? That's our question for this Easter morning, and I'd like to suggest, even at this stage, that the answer uh, is been spoiled for you at the very beginning of uh, the bulletins, be strong, let your hearts take courage, all you who wait for the Lord, or lamentations, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, God saves those who wait. First, we're going to consider just that, we're going to consider the wait itself, second, God's answer to those who wait, and finally, consider the surety that awaits as we wait for the redemption that belongs to the children of God. First then, the wait. Why the wait? Why three days? Now there is actually an obvious answer to this question. Uh, it's there right in Luke 24. You can see Paul reflecting on it in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus tells us that he waited three days, that it was that his death was prolonged, he was buried and under the power of death for three days, in fulfillment of the scriptures. That the scriptures themselves testify that this is how things would come to pass. And so Jesus, in fulfilling those scriptures, follows the, the pattern. God is true to his word, and so Jesus remains in the ground for three days. But that answer actually pushes the question back a bit. We might ask it this way. Why is that the promise? Why is that the expectation? Why is that the testimony of scripture? Why does God want to do it this way? Because when the Bible explains things and it works through what God is going to do, there is usually a logic to it. God is not an arbitrary God. He doesn't do things by chance. He doesn't do things randomly. There is a logic to the wait. And we might ask in trying to think God's thoughts after him, why? Does God prolong Jesus in his death? It's a difficult question. And yet, I think we have some good answers for us as we consider this passage. Consider then, for example... Way back in Mark 15, if you want to turn in your bulletins to page 4, you could see the text that awaits us. Way back in Mark 15, we have a picture of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph, his story, while we don't usually or typically reflect on it all that much, it actually gives us some clues as to why we are waiting. You can see uh, in Joseph of Arimathea, uh, of Arimathea that Joseph fully believes that Jesus is dead. Now, that may seem obvious at some level, but let that sink in a bit. See, one of the mistakes that we can make as we approach the stories that are given to us at the resurrection, one of the mistakes that we can make is to to insufficiently put ourselves in the disciples' shoes because we know the end of the story. We know that it's all going to work out, right? That Jesus is going to be raised, he is going to be given the name that is above every name. We know that. And so we sometimes miss the despair and the fear and the uncertainty that exists for the disciples. Why does Joseph of Arimathea why does he go up to Pilate and ask for a tomb? And the only answer to that question is Because Joseph of Arimathea, though he is waiting on the kingdom of God, though he is, as we will consider in a moment, a faithful follower of God and a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, though he is those things, what he believes at this moment is that Jesus is permanently dead, that there will be no resurrection, that the resurrection is an impossibility. He has the teaching of the Old Testament. But the, rev, the teaching that we have as our surety is actually hidden from Joseph. It's hidden from the disciples. It has to be unveiled to them by Jesus himself in that Luke passage that we'll look at shortly. Why does Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, why do they go to the tomb? They go to the tomb because they believe that Jesus is dead, and is rotting in the grave, and therefore they are bringing the traditional spices that are required to anoint the one that they once loved. Why wait? Why the delay? So that the certainty of defeat might be impressed upon those who followed Jesus. What waiting does, what in God's pattern, not only in the life of the disciples, but in the life of the saints in ages past and in our own lives, why does God make us wait? God makes us wait so that the reality of the defeat, the reality of the pain, the reality of the problem, the depth of despair might be fully appreciated and felt. Mary's actions, Joseph's actions, the disciples' actions, all these presuppose that they, though they were indeed followers of Jesus Christ, they believed Jesus was actually and permanently dead. And they believed that because all of the signs of death were there. They believed that because Jesus really was dead. And the wisdom of the ages, dead is dead. No one has been raised as Jesus will be raised. You don't bury someone that you expect to rise from the dead. If Joseph and Mary and the disciples could have looked into the future and known that Jesus would rise, they would not have buried this man that they followed. No, what they do is they mourn. What they do is they bury him. They put him in a tomb because Jesus is permanently dead. They. Are in the course of these three days absorbing the reality of defeat. There is no vic- the victory has not been won. They have been defeated. Their hopes have been dashed. And over the course of three days, wishful thinking has departed. Jesus is dead. He is in the grave. The Romans have won yet again. Should we wait for another? Now, God isn't being cruel here. He's not being cruel to the disciples and making them wait. He doesn't, he's not cruel to us and making us wait. Maybe you have prayed a prayer and you've expected that prayer to be answered in short order. And God has called you to wait in the midst of pain and suffering as the thorn in your flesh continues to linger God is not being cruel here. What God is doing is impressing upon the disciples and impressing upon us the power of the enemy and our own weakness as we attempt to respond to us. God wants us and them to know that we cannot save ourselves, that our hope is not through work but through weight, that our hope is not through our own endeavors, through our own skills, but that we are called, like the saints of old, to wait quietly for the Lord to act. He's not torturing us. He's reminding us of the depth of our sin, the power of the cross, the power of death. He's reminding us of the power of the curse that rests upon us and our own inability to revive ourselves, we must wait for the physician to come. And in that waiting, why we wait? so that the reality of the defeat may be impressed upon us. But in that waiting, there is another purpose. In that waiting, Joseph and Mary and the disciples demonstrate their great faith. Consider again Joseph of Arimathea. He doesn't know what God is going to do. He believes Jesus to be permanently dead, which is why he buys a, uh, buries him in this tomb. But Joseph is a man of faith, And the burial itself, while it displays Joseph's ignorance of the mysteries that are yet to be revealed, Joseph's, the burial itself displays Joseph's faith. He is described in Mark again, a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin. We know from Luke, by the way, that uh, uh, Joseph opposed the decision to crucify Jesus. So he's only guilty of having bad company there. He was himself looking for the kingdom of God, and he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, Joseph is described as taking courage, and courage was needed for this act. This act, to go up to Pilate and say, I want the body of Jesus, that I might give him an honorable burial, takes courage. There's a lot embedded there. You see... For Joseph to do this is to admit to Pilate and to the rest of the watching world, these are public affairs, to admit to Pilate and the rest of the watching world that he was a follower of Jesus Christ, and that he, even after his death, even after a, a death that was intended to publicly shame this criminal, as far as the Romans were concerned, even after that kind of death, Joseph would honor Jesus. It's an act of faith. And he has no rational, worldly reason to engage in this kind of behavior. This is irrational behavior. If the Messiah was going to defeat the Romans, and the the person that you believed to be the Messiah is actually defeated by the Romans, and you believe him to be permanently dead, then he was wrong. You have put your hopes in the wrong person. But Joseph doesn't repudiate this man Jesus. Rather, he takes courage and he waits for the Lord. He doesn't know what he's waiting for, but he's waiting. He doesn't know how God is going to fulfill the promises that were made, fulfill the hopes, the hopes that he had placed on this man Jesus, but he waits nonetheless. Mary, same thing. She goes to publicly honor her Lord, she waits. She doesn't know how God is going to redeem. She is surprised and even fearful. She did not expect what she found at that tomb. But she waited. And her wait would be rewarded. And she would be, in fact, the first to testify to the risen Christ. God allows us to wait, not only so that we might experience the fullness of the defeat, not only that we might understand the reality of the trouble that we face, and that God alone is able to redeem us from that trouble, he also asks us to wait that we may invent genuine faith, that we might have the opportunity to exercise faith in our Lord. Waiting on God is nothing less than faith. And what we find with Joseph, what we find with Mary, what we find with the disciples is ignorance of the mysteries, but faith nonetheless. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know how these hopes that I had might be fulfilled. But they will be. The wait may be prolonged, the wait may be difficult, But in his time, God will answer. The wait will be met with an answer. This is how God works. God always meets faithful waiting with an answer. And the glory of the resurrection, the glory of Easter, the glory of this day is that Easter represents the answer to waiting. Easter is God's answer to our waiting. God answers the waiting people of God with resurrection life. As we consider this, as we consider then the answer and the way in which these texts all speak in their various ways to the answer that God gives, I want to consider very briefly two things. First, the magnitude of God's answer, and second, the clarity of God's answer. Notice, first of all, the magnitude of God's answer. We could put it pretty briefly this way. God doesn't Overpromise and underdeliver. And maybe you've uh, watched a movie, maybe you've been waiting. Let's say you've been waiting for the next round of Star Wars or the, the next book in the series or the, uh, the next season of that TV episode uh, that you love, and it comes along. You've been waiting for so long, it comes along, and you are totally and completely disappointed by the expectations. It couldn't meet your expectations. And suffering is like that right there there are things that we expect at the end of our suffering there are things that we expect from our toil and it doesn't meet our expectations that and we throw up our hands and we say that's life this is not the pattern that God brings for his people what God always does is he turns our tears into joy he doesn't patch over the pain he doesn't quickly solve the problem He allows us to understand the depth of our despair. And then what he does is he gives us a joy in response that overwhelms the despair that we once had. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. They are in the depths of despair. They do not know how God is going to fulfill his promises. But God fulfills his promises above and beyond anything that they could ever expect. God doesn't send another Messiah... That's what John, member of John, way back when, should we, is, are you the one we, we've been waiting for, or should we expect another? Well, maybe the disciples after this were expecting another. Maybe we need to be on the ready. Maybe Jesus was really just the voice crying in the wilderness. We need to wait for another. We don't know exactly what's going through the disciples' head, but they're given not another Messiah, They are not given a merely heavenly or spiritual or disembodied Messiah. They are given their Messiah back in glory. They are given the resurrected Christ. They are given back the one that they loved, body and soul. They are given the King of kings, the Lord of lords. They will see this Messiah ascend into the heavenly places and sit at the right hand of God the Father... They will be surprised to learn that into this one's hands, the one that they loved, all judgment has been given and he will judge both the heavens and the earth. They are given the great blessing of the spirit poured out at Pentecost. They are given above and beyond anything that they had hoped, anything that they expected. Their tears are turned to joy. Precisely that which gave them grief has turned to be their greatest victory it's above and beyond what was expected god promised a car and they got a ferrari it's it's bigger and better than they could have ever imagined god doesn't over promise and under deliver the weight is always worth it and then some notice also and i love this about these passages not only is the the answer big and bold, but it's also very, very clear. It's unambiguous. You know, Jesus comes, if you flip over to the Luke passage, Jesus, they're, they're in the room, they're talking amongst themselves, and Jesus appears, peace to you, peace be with you, and they think that they've seen a spirit. Actually, in all of these resurrection appearances, I can't help but appreciate or uh, meditate upon the giddiness of Jesus in these passages, he, he's not a sour, dour savior. He comes and it's, it's like it is his great delight to show and tell, to show them what has happened, right? To demonstrate the glory that has come. So they stare at him disbelieving and he asks them to touch, to feel, to see that he has hands and flesh. And they still are disbelieving uh, and so he says, have you anything to eat? And he eats a fish in their midst. Right? He's got a body, and he needs fish, and he eats it as he ate it with them of old to encourage them, to remind them of days gone by, and to remind them that the days ahead are going to be even better. His, appearance, his appearances to Mary and to Peter and to Thomas, I mean, line those up today or tomorrow and the week to come, and look how Jesus proclaims himself to the watching world, it's as if he just keeps over and over saying, now see this, now look at it again. It's like he keeps pointing out how great and glorious and wonderful it is. I was being made fun of over the course of last week uh, about, because I I bought my wife one too many uh, uh, groups of flowers Okay, I, I bought three sets of flowers over the last week. I have no idea why. I just kept seeing flowers and thinking, those are pretty. Sarah would like this. So I bought my wife a couple a couple too many uh, flowers. And and to add insult to injury, over the week I kind of pointed them out a lot. Like, oh, these are beautiful. Aren't they beautiful? Right. This is what Jesus is doing throughout his uh, return to earth. He's saying, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my body. Watch me eat. He's displaying to the disciples clearly and unambiguously, I have been raised. Your prayers have been answers. Let me show you again what has happened, what has transpired. The answer is magnificent. And it's perfectly clear to the eyes of faith, Jesus reveals himself as risen. And so there is no room for doubt. In our waiting, we receive the clear, unambiguous, bold answer of God, He is risen. If you wonder about the problem of suffering and the problem of evil and why the trials and why the temptation and why the challenges, why the waiting, even now the waiting, God's answer is more clear than it could ever be, He is risen, and the victory is so assured. Which brings us to our last consideration, the surety by which we wait. We, too, are called to wait. In the wisdom of God, he has not decided that in the resurrection of Christ that he would wrap up every loose end, that he would bring all things in submission. No, there is a new period of waiting. It is actually a better order of waiting than the saints of old experience. But nevertheless, a period of waiting that exists still for the people of God as we wait now for all things to be accomplished. Hebrews testifies to this, just as it was appointed for one man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So we are called to wait, And we might again ask why and we could already reflect on what we've talked about so far and the passages that we've read and come up with some preliminary answers as to God's logic there. He is increasing his glory as he's building his kingdom and the, all the saints are being gathered in to, uh, to his people. He is increasing his glory by allowing them to exercise genuine faith as they follow God even in the midst of suffering, perhaps even suffering unto death as we saw in Revelation 6, but for whatever reason in the wisdom of God he has called us to wait that the fullness of redemption might be made known to us sometime in the future. But Easter, Easter is the promise that that waiting is worth it and that waiting is not a passive Kesara, hey, Sara, whatever will be, will be. But it is an active hoping in the Lord with the assurances of his precious promises. How do we wait? What does that look like? In the weeks to come, in the months to come, the years to come, what does it look like for us to wait on God? To wait on God to heal a wound, to take care of us in the midst of sickness. For the resurrection of the body. What does it look like to wait on God? Well, it looks in very concrete ways like Joseph, like Mary, like the saints of old. We, like them, are to wait quietly, not taking up the sword to bring about what we believe to be the will of God in our lives, not complaining, not grumbling to our friends and to our neighbors, not trying to induce God or manipulate God to do what we want, but quietly waiting, eagerly awaiting, knowing that the promises that await will be fully fulfilled and that it will leave, will leave us in no doubt of what is to come. We're to wait courageously as Joseph himself waited, persevering in faith, exercising that faith, even in situations in which it's dangerous or will cause us perhaps harm persisting to obey God and to follow after his will? In all of these ways, we wait like the saints of old wait. And I'd point you to Isaiah 40 here, particularly those last two verses. Even youth shall faint and be weary, young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. We see a beautiful picture of what it is like to wait as a Christian in that passage. Waiting feels like a defeat. Waiting feels like weakness. And the reason it feels like that, the reason we don't want to wait, the reason why we want to take up arms, the reason why we want to uh, take matters into our own hands and bring about our own fate and be the masters of our own universe, the reason why that is our instinct is because waiting is like a defeat. It is an admission that we're weak. It is is an admission that we need somebody to intercede on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, that's one of the reasons God makes us wait, is because we need to realize that. We need to realize that we're defeated. We need to realize that we cannot put bread in front of our kids without the willing gift of God. We need to realize our dependency. We need to realize our weakness, our frailty, We need to appreciate the despair that would descend upon us if God did not favor his people. Even youths shall faint and be weary. We need to feel that weariness. But the promise is that this waiting isn't a mere whatever will be will be. This waiting isn't a giving up. It isn't a John Mayer, waiting on the world to change and just hope it gets better someday. It's not an apathetic waiting. It's not a nihilistic waiting. It is a waiting that trusts in God because what we learn from Easter, what we learn from the resurrection, is that though we grow faint and weary, though in our waiting we come to a greater and greater appreciation of our despair and our inability, yet precisely at that moment, the Lord shall renew our strength. We are the ones who will mount on the wings of eagles. We will receive the victory. Because God will answer in his time. We wait like they waited of old, but we have something they didn't have. We have the fulfillment of the promises of God in the resurrection of Christ. We are post-Easter waiters. And because we wait in this time after Easter, because we wait having already known and believed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that this key moment of history when all the promises of God find their yes and amen, not some of them, but all of them have been fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Christ so that he is ascended and has received the name that is above every name. Because we wait now, that having already happened, we wait as victors. There's a greater confidence, a greater surety that attaches to our waiting. That is why Paul and Peter can say, when you suffer, be joyful. That doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if Christ is risen and if all of our suffering is going to be turned into joy through Christ. It only makes sense if this waiting in which we are engaged is going to find as its culmination the resurrection of our bodies raised with Christ. We have this great confidence. We wait as victors. This week, I was we were playing a card game as a family, and this doesn't always happen. It's a really well-balanced game, but I picked two cards in a row, and I mean, there is no way anyone is gonna beat me. I mean, I just got 40 points. I'm the only one who knows that I just got 40 points, but I got 40 points, and I know that I am gonna win. There is no way. All that remains is for me to wait for the cards to be finally revealed and then my glory will be fully known by my children and they will look to me as dad who is yet again victorious. You know, this is the expectation. I am waiting for the end of the game, but I am waiting as a victor, as one who's already won, confident of my position. And there's a joy in that. There's an eagerness to it. We wait, because we wait this side of Easter, we wait knowing that the victory has already been accomplished, knowing that sin and death have already been destroyed, knowing that, the, that a human being has already been raised into newness of life, knowing that Jesus will conquer his enemies and ours. That is the hope of Easter, and that is the power by which we wait. So as we engage in the trials that God puts before us, as we continue to wait for him to deliver us, as we more f- and more fully appreciate our own weakness, and as we more fully appreciate the glory that is yet to come, remember the resurrection. Remember the Easter morning. Remember Joseph. Remember Mary. Remember Thomas. Remember Peter. Remember, they, they could not be more despairing that they were, than they were. And yet they had faith, and God rewarded their faith with an answer. An answer that we know to be true, and that in our waiting we can testify to the victory of God. Live as those who have obtained the victory the victory over your suffering, the victory over your temptation, the victory over despair, because we wait for Christ who already waited and was raised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though there are trials and challenges and difficulties that we must face, though we don't always have a good answer to why we're facing these problems, though you often do not tell us how long it will be and how long we must wait, Nevertheless, you have testified to us in the resurrection of, the, of Christ that you will not disappoint, that you will reward beyond expectation, and that that reward will be a joy forevermore. We pray then that you would give us courage, that you would give us patience, eagerness, persistence, that we would be able to wait quietly for the coming of the Lord, and yet confident of the victory that has been assured. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.